We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Sedholm. And I'm your host, Jessica Sedholm. In today's episode, we look at how a relatively harmless disease afflicting milkmaids led to saving millions of lives, thanks to the work of one British doctor. This is the story of Edward Jenner. Vaccines, how the milkmaid cured smallpox. Yoo-hoo! Sarah! Bring me the next batch! Yes, Mum, but Blossom is getting tired. There, there, Blossom. There's the last batch, milady. You know, dear, you have the fairest skin in all of England. It's the milkmaid's best-kept secret. <laughs> what would that be? I shall never have a pox pocket face. Oh, stop that talk. Don't curse yourself, child. It's true. God has favoured the milkmaids. Women of our trade never get smallpox. Only cowpox. I know Blossom does not have a lintento. Really? In fact, the most peculiar doctor came to me just the other day, asking all kinds of questions about my cowpox. Oh, how strange. The oddities in this town. Oh my gosh. It's late 18th century England. Edward Jenner, physician and scientist, was witness to many patients afflicted with a deadly, incurable disease, smallpox. History tells of its devastating effects on populations all across the world. A devastation that cannot be underappreciated. Nearly 400,000 Europeans were dying of the disease every year as the 18th century came to a close. In a majority of cases, it was uniformly fatal within just two weeks. Having received training in medicine and surgery at St. George's in 1770, Dr. Jenner returned to the countryside to practice with his local community as both a family medicine physician and a surgeon. As he treated patients during a smallpox outbreak, he noticed a rather odd correlation. As the town hid in fear from smallpox, there was this population of milkmaids that never broke a sweat. Even when an outbreak rendered them easy targets, they were seemingly invincible. He thought to himself, how could this be? Did they have some curative potion that rendered them safe? Or maybe it was something in the barn that was giving them protection. Were they simply chosen by God? While Dr. Jenner didn't have an answer, the milkmaids did. They claimed it was because they contracted a different disease, cowpox, from their work in the fields. 
Cowpox looks similar to smallpox, with mild fever and uncomfortable pustules that would form on their hands. And pustules are exactly what they sound like. They're skin patches filled with pus. Yeah, pretty gross. Mm -hmm. And though definitely uncomfortable, it was non-lethal. Milkmaids would often get infected through contact with a cow udder by just doing their job. Just another day's work to them. This got Edward Jenner thinking. If he could somehow infect others with cowpox, could he prevent smallpox from wreaking its havoc? He decided to test his theory in what is now considered, in this day and age, a highly unethical experiment. He infected the son of his gardener intentionally, an eight-year-old boy by the name of James Phipps, with the cowpox virus that was taken from pustules of a milkmaid. Her name was Sarah Nelms. Sarah caught the disease from a cow. Her name was Blossom. True. Pretty funny. He then placed the pus under the child's skin and waited to see what would happen. Several weeks went by, and he still couldn't see a reaction, indicating that the cowpox had successfully entered the boy's body without hurting him. Luckily for everyone. That year, even though James Phipps was surrounded by people that were dropping like flies from the disease, he didn't contract smallpox at all. He was definitely onto something, but exactly what that was, Edward Jenner wasn't sure. Edward Jenner initially received high praise for his success. But like all good stories on this podcast, that came with inevitable opposition. Most people opposed the idea of injecting part of an animal into a human. They just didn't want to risk unpredictable side effects. There was even this caricature, you could call it a political cartoon, from Jenner's day that boasted of the, quote, wonderful effects of the new inoculation. And it's accompanied by this image of people with cow appendages coming out of them, a tail here, horns elsewhere, as they're walking out of the vaccination clinic. So it wasn't really taken lightly. Yeah, and people actually thought this. Critics genuinely feared that animal metamorphosis could occur as a result of the vaccine. And that's insane. I mean, it's preposterous. That's like saying your kid is going to get autism from a vaccine. (laughs) 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 Got him. Uh, But with time and logic, the vaccination proved to be a tremendous success. And in 1840, England instituted vaccination as the new method of eradicating smallpox. The term vaccine was coined by Jenner from the Latin word vaccinus, which translates to from the cow. An appropriate name, if I do say so myself. His work paid him handsomely in wealth, prestige, and fame. The government alone gave him 30,000 pounds, a sum that would guarantee wealth for the rest of his life. He is credited with saving thousands of soldiers in subsequent wars, both home and abroad. For example... When Napoleon Bonaparte went to war with Britain, he had all of his troops vaccinated. Sometime later, Jenner asked Napoleon to release British prisoners of war and requested the emperor return them safely back to England. Napoleon, surprisingly, happily obliged, stating that he could not refuse anything to one of the greatest benefactors of mankind. The Bono of his time. Indeed. 
It's important to know that although Jenner's infamous 1796 experiment is credited with triggering this revolution, he was not the first to inoculate. A form of inoculation had been brought from the Far East several hundred years ago and was in practice in Europe long before Jenner's time. In this practice, however, areas of infected smallpox, not cowpox, but the actual lethal smallpox, were rubbed against the skin or sometimes even inhaled in an effort to induce a milder form of the disease. The process was not only insufficient at times, but often deadly. By exposing people to full-blown smallpox, the disease could kill and spread in areas that had been relatively unscathed before. It's basically like, instead of me giving you a vaccine that's been treated and is deactivated from causing harm, I put you instead in a room with someone who's actively infected with smallpox for a few minutes, and hopefully you contract it just a little bit. And obviously we now know that that's not how viruses replicate, and so a lot of people ended up dying. Jenner may have not been the first to inoculate specifically for smallpox either. An English farmer named Benjamin Jesty used the infected udders of cows to protect his family from smallpox outbreak nearly 20 years earlier than Jenner, in essence using a safer form of inoculation because it used cowpox rather than smallpox. There is controversy as to whether Jenner knew of Jesty's practice and if they influenced his later experiments. That being said, the fact that Jenner used an experiment to validate his theory of immunization, as well as making the vaccine superior to inoculation, is what gives him due credit for his achievement. He has gone down in history as the father of immunology, and some say that his work has saved more lives than any single man in history. that time, Jesse. Uh-oh. It's time to learn the science behind some of our favorite stories. Off to the Synaptic Center. He has fever. He is listless, and his pulse is rapid. But what's going on inside the child's body? The germs have infected his body through the bloodstream. The germs are repelling these amoeba white cells whose work it is to remove foreign materials from his blood. The white cells cannot dispose of them. But under stimulus of the germs, tiny particles called antibodies are being produced and poured into his bloodstream. What's more, he now has a surplus of antibodies that will aid him to resist future attacks of the same disease. And so this child has what we call active immunity because he has developed his own antibodies. He has acquired this active immunity by actually having the disease. Fortunately, there's a safer way to get immunity. This is through vaccination. You may remember from our last episode when we were talking about David Vetter, we talked about the adaptive immune system, and that still applies with the role of vaccines today. Basically, the adaptive immune system creates those memory cells, B lymphocytes, that allow us to remember and recognize foreign bodies called antigens. And so if our B cells tag those antigens, 
then our body can fight off a disease more quickly. And so what a vaccine does is it introduces a small dose of the virus into your immune system so your body can generate B lymphocytes. And that's really neat because essentially you're tricking your immune system into thinking that you've already had a disease that you never contracted. And the hope is that by introducing the disease the first time, that if you ever get infected by that same disease again, your body has already basically created an army. And that army is just ready at the front line to help you prevent any further infection. Yeah, so you have like very archaic diseases like rubella and mumps and diphtheria and polio that used to devastate entire populations that now our bodies can naturally fend off because you introduce a dead version of the virus. And so or bacteria or bacteria or sometimes parasite as well. So like the flu virus I think is really cool because the flu virus they try to pick the strain that's going to be most popular that year and sometimes they're wrong. Uh, which is how we had all those people die a couple years ago after getting the flu vaccine. And flu is one of those kind of more tricky viruses because it adapts very quickly and is subject to a lot of different mutations. But many of our established diseases like measles, mumps, rubella, those ones that you've previously described, those are quite established. And that's why the vaccines are so incredibly effective. And that's why the vaccine against smallpox was so incredibly effective. Yeah. And one of the unique things about smallpox that made it very easy to identify is that it really expressed itself in its full form very quickly. Yeah. Once someone contracted smallpox, you knew it. They were covered in these pustules all over. And within two weeks, they were likely to die if they had a certain type And we take this for granted in the modern era. We don't know what it's like to lose family at a young age to measles or to see a paraplegic who was infected with polio. The idea of people dying from TB or a bad case of cholera is so archaic it's basically romanticized in movies and books. Moulin Rouge, love in the time of cholera, in that order. We're fortunate for this reality. Unfortunately, however, headlines like Measles outbreak and pertussis affect schools seem to populate the news feeds more and more these days. It seems like we've taken a step back on the path to global health. Why is this? What happened? We trace this back to the root of the anti-vaccine or anti-vax movement. This group of people who believe vaccines may be linked to diseases such as autism was born when I was growing up somewhere in the early 2000s. And to be clear, This is a false claim with many scientific studies showing no correlation between vaccines and autism. So where did these originate? Well, these claims were first made by a British doctor by the name of Andrew Wakefield in 1998, so fairly recently. His study was published in a prominent and well-respected medical journal called The Lancet. He linked the MMR vaccine, which protects against measles, mumps, rubella, to an increased incidence of autism and enterocolitis, which is inflammation of the colon. From there, the seed was planted that there was some correlation between vaccines and other seemingly unrelated diseases. Wakefield's study was found to be based on false data, and that paper was redacted shortly after his claims were found to be phony. 
In fact, Wakefield lost his license for making those claims. But I'm afraid the damage has already been done. The rates of vaccination have been on the decline in the U.S. and the U.K. in recent years. And I mean, these anti-vax parents are exactly the kind of people we were talking about earlier. People who have had the luxury of living in a vaccinated world. And so a couple of reasons why the movement has been so strong is, first and foremost, the signs and the symptoms of autism often reveal themselves initially around the time a child is receiving vaccinations, leading to the appearance of correlation. But always remember that correlation does not imply causation. Like, take a psych class. Jeez. (laughs) Two, the vaccines have done their job so well that people don't see the effects of the diseases. They assume that if they don't vaccinate their kids, it doesn't matter because they can't get a disease that hasn't been seen in their community. But this logic breaks down because for vaccines to be effective, they need to be administered to a minimum percentage of the population. This is termed herd immunity. Eh. If the herd immunity falls below the threshold, then outbreak occurs. And third and finally, psychologically, people feel more responsible for a bad outcome if they acted in a way that resulted in that outcome. In layman's terms, to some parents, if they give the vaccine and their child gets autism, they feel more guilty than if the child had autism without the parent's deliberate intervention. The misinformation spread by these anti-vax groups is dangerous to communities. Some anti-vaxxers will say, well, if you really want to vaccinate your kid, then go ahead. Why do I have to? I'm not harming anyone by not getting my kid vaccinated. And that's likely the greatest fallacy, because there are certain vulnerable populations, like like children under the age of six months or immunocompromised patients who have HIV or are on chemotherapy, who can't take vaccines because of their immature or deficient immune systems. They rely on herd immunity to stay safe. So not vaccinating puts everyone at harm's way. The campaign against infectious disease can succeed only if the public cooperates. Most important of all is vaccination in the early years of life. Many infectious diseases can be brought completely under control when vaccination against them is practiced universally. Vaccinate your children for the sake of their health and for the health of your local community. Way to drive it home, Wolfie. Now let's conclude this story. On May 8, 1980, the World Health Organization declared smallpox eradicated from the globe following two and a half years since the last reported case. The campaign they spearheaded to eradicate smallpox from the last 30 endemic countries in the late 1960s used surveillance and rigorous vaccination attempts to completely purge the virus from the earth. This feat attests to the incredible work of people working together on a mission that spanned the globe for nearly two centuries. It should never be underestimated that the discovery of the vaccine and the dedicated efforts of many brave men and women have resulted in one of the most remarkable achievements of mankind. 
Never will smallpox be able to wreak its terror and death on humans again. I think it's fitting that the disease that spurned the creation of the vaccination was the one that humans were able to expunge from the earth. And all thanks to a man, a milkmaid, and a poor little boy. Good for him, though. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medicalization. Please make sure to follow us on iTunes and or SoundCloud and give us a review. You don't have to give us a review. But sharing with your friends and writing a review are the best ways to help us out. We'll see you next time for another look into the medical history vault with Jess and Wafik. Until then, toodaloo. We'd like to thank Carrie Nelson for her role as one of the milkmaids. I think it's fitting that the disease that spurned the creation of the vaccination was the one that humans were able to get connected for free with medicine connection. There's the last batch, my lady. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Read the line. Oh, how strange. Ah, the oddities, man. <laughs> mom. Mom, mom. Beer can. <laughs> now, back to our show.